bulletin. Um, we'll be reading from the NIV version. Um, you also may be able to find that on your Bible app or if you have your Bible with you. If you don't have the NIV version, it may sound slightly different, so don't concern yourself too much about that. Uh, again, that's Psalm 16. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. I have made, you have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with, the, with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for uh, praying, leading us in prayer and reading for us, Bryce. Um, before I begin, let me, uh, let me make an excuse right at the outset. Um, I was saying to, to Jessica this morning, I was like, oh, I can't stand my sermon, which is a really lousy way to start your Sunday morning when you're a pastor. Um, it's not so much that I can't stand my sermon, it's that as I, I, have, uh, I have spent a fair amount of time in Psalm 16, it's one of my favorite, favorite psalms, I've thought about it a lot, I, I memorized it at one point, uh, and what I find is, is that uh, God is true, he says that his, his word is a deep well that you can keep going back to and find new things. And I find that, that as the more I study Psalm 16, the more I discover there, the more I learn there, the, new, the more new things I find out about it. And so I never feel like any message on Psalm 16 is sufficient or complete. And so that's sort of my excuse for this morning's message. If it seems like there's a lot of unanswered questions or a lot of things I didn't say, it's because uh, it's incomplete. Um, it, it's, a, it's a remarkable psalm, Psalm 16. It's, it's one of David's psalms, as many of you I'm sure are aware of, and it's extremely poetic. I think one of the things that makes David... Uh, such a, an attractive person to us as a biblical character is the fact that um, we know so much about David's life. We have these two parts of David's life. We have his biography that you get in many of the uh, historical books of the Old Testament, but then you also get sort of his spiritual biography 
in the writings, many of the writings that Psalm, or that, that David wrote, such as the Psalms, that are recorded in the Bible. So we, we not only get sort of the things that happened in his life, his professional life and his personal life, but we also get his reflections on his life and his relationship with God through that. Many of you know a little bit about David's life. It was not an easy life. David, this man after God's own heart who was anointed by God to be the king over Israel, did not have sort of a perfectly easy life, not in the least. He was apparently not a very good parent. One of his kids rebelled against him and tried to have him killed. And you think you have it bad, mom and dad. He was not a particularly morally upright person all his life. You, I'm sure, are aware of the story of Bathsheba where he had one of his best friends, mind you, one of his best friends killed so that he could continue his relationship with that best friend's wife. The weird thing about David is, is that in the midst of all these ups and downs of his life and, and, and the mistakes that he made as a, a man after God's own heart, he had this incredible hope, this incredible confidence, uh, despite it all, that seemed to be woven through his life and were, was, was always there. If you look at verse 1 of, of Psalm 16, it says, Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. The theme of this a psalm is security. And in God, David seems to always find his security and always find his confidence and always find his safety. And so this psalm is kind of a reflection on his source of hope and confidence and safety despite the uncertainty of his life circumstances. Now, wouldn't you like to be like that? You look back, back on the last year, this, this is what you do at this time of year, right? You look back and you look forward. And as you look back, you look at the ups and downs of your life and you think, man, there were some experiences that I have had that completely rocked my foundations. Some of you have had those experiences this past year. You have had things happen in your life that have completely rocked your foundations. God has a way of doing that, you see. He has a way of finding those things in your life that you have tried to build your life on that are not Him, and He shakes them. And half the time, you don't even know you've done it until He shakes them, and you open your eyes and you see, hokey doodle, I can't believe that I thought that I was a solid follower of Jesus Christ who had put my hope in my God alone. But what I'm realizing is, is that in fact, it's my health that really matters to me. Or it's my money that really matters to me. Or it's my spouse that really matters to me. Or it's my reputation that really matters to me. I'm getting way, 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 way ahead of myself. My point was this. Wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it be great to lead a non-anxious life in the face of an uncertain future. To be able to sleep well every night because you have this rock-solid confidence and hope in your Heavenly Father. 
to be like David. So here's our New Year's resolution, okay? We're, we want to be like David. Dare to be a David. Oh, wait, that's not how it goes, is it? Yeah, it is now. It is now. One verse is dare to be a David? Okay. Anyhow, <laughs> um, what we're going to do is we're going to look through this, this uh, psalm together. We're just going to go through it, and we're going to unpack what David is saying here and hopefully come out the other side understanding how we can live with a solid confidence and hope in our God as we face another year ahead of us. Look at verse 2. David says something that's very interesting. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, what an interesting statement to make. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Now, notice, notice that, that David is not saying he doesn't have any other good things. He's not saying that other things aren't good. In verse 3, he says, for example... As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom I delight. What he's talking about is he's talking about the people of God. If we're New Testament people, we would, we would say the church. He's talking about his church family. They are the glorious ones in whom I delight. Do you say that about each other? I hope that was a laugh, an of course laugh. David is saying that these people are, are precious to me. But in saying, apart from you, I have no good thing, what he, is, uh, what he is highlighting is that no other thing in this world can be ultimately satisfying without God as the center of your life. Now, that's a thought worth pondering. No other thing in this world, in this life, can be ultimately satisfying apart from having God as the center of your life. C.S. Lewis once said that he who has God and nothing else no, I messed that up. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. It's just another way of saying the same thing. Really though? I mean, Bill Gates you. He has nothing better than you? Austin Matthews? You? He has nothing better than you? Jennifer Lawrence? You? She has nothing better than you? How in the world that can, can that be? How can someone who is rich and successful and on top of the world be no more well off than someone who has a tiny little hut with a dirt floor and barely enough to eat every day, so long as that person with the tiny little hut and a dirt floor and only enough to eat every day has Jesus Christ. How in the world is that possible? Why is that possible? Well, look at verse 4. David says, The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. All of a sudden, he introduces this concept of other gods. And this is what David is doing. He's making an assumption, an assumption that the Bible makes all over the place. And it's this every single human being alive worships. We are fundamentally worshiping beings. We are not just Homo sapien. You know, Homo sapien, that means, oh boy, I don't really know Latin, so I'm making it up. 
but it means the thinking ones or something like the thinking ones. We're not primarily thinking beings. We're primarily desiring beings. In other words, to worship means that we have to have something that is the darling of our hearts. Something that is our highest value. Something that matters to us more than anything else. And it can be any number of things. It can be bad things. It can be good things. Oftentimes, it's good things that go bad. So if your good thing is your spouse, that's a God. For some of us, our good thing is our friends. That's our God, this highest value. For some of us, it's success. If I am a success in my business or in my career, then I, I know I'm secure, then I know I have an identity, then I know I matter, then I know I'm meaningful, then life, life is worth living. For some of us, it's our health. And the interesting thing about this is that, that at first, when you put your trust in these, what David calls other gods... It seems to work. It seems to work. You do feel like, like that thing is delivering. You feel confident. You feel meaningful. You feel like you have a, a purpose in life. You get up every day sort of entering into life in strength and in hope and in confidence. But over time, and this is David's argument, over time things start to change. This is why he says, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. And probably the, the best way to think about this is to borrow from the language of addictions. Some of us are familiar with addiction, substance addiction, that kind of thing. And there's something in, in, in addiction called the tolerance effect. And basically, the idea is, is that, you know, the first time you try a substance, it has a very strong effect on you. And it can be anything from cocaine or alcohol or cigarettes or whatever, or, or uh, the, the act of gambling or pornography, whatever. You have, it has this strong, powerful effect on you. But the thing is, is that as you use it to get that effect, that sense of euphoria or that sense of confidence or that sense of, of, of exhilaration, as you continue to use that substance, you need more of it each time to get the same high. And, and some user, I mean, I'm not a, a user, but if you talk to people who have, have used uh, drugs uh, for a long period of time, they'll tell you that, that sometimes what happens is, is that you're actually chasing that very first high. Every high after the first high is not as good good, but you are hooked on believing that you can get back to that high, and so you chase it. But here's the thing. Behind that addiction is actually a deeper longing. It's not just the exhilaration. It's not just the high in the moment that we're chasing. David says this in verse 5 and 6. He says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. You're seeking that security. You're seeking that safety. Anybody, so true confession, I used to be a smoker. And what I discovered about cigarettes was, was that 
I found them completely and utterly reliable. I know that sounds weird to people who don't smoke, but here's the thing. When you're a smoker and you have a moment of anxiety and you're dealing with something difficult, you immediately, instinctively run to that cigarette because when you smoke that cigarette, you know that you are, sec you are secure in that cigarette. It will always deliver. It's always there giving you that thing that you're looking for in the moment. That's precisely what happens in, in addiction, and that's precisely what, what we're looking for whenever we pursue one of these idols, whether it be a substance or a family member or a spouse or a career or whatever. There's a deeper longing behind it. Listen to what Neil Planninga says. This is on the front of your bulletin. He describes it this way. He says, what moves the addict to the bait? At every stage, addiction is driven by one of the most powerful, mysterious, vital forces of human existence. What drives addiction is not just longing of brain, belly, or loins, but finally, of the heart. Because they are human beings, addicts long for wholeness, for fulfillment, and for the final good that believers call God. Like all idolatries, addiction taps this vital spiritual force and draws off its energies to objects and processes that drain the addict, addict instead of fulfilling them. His point is this. You're chasing that security, you're tra chasing that sense of, of safety, but the problem with the, uh, with the idol is, is that it can never deliver, and so you're always coming up short. You're always wanting more. You're always left needing more. You're always left hanging. And people who reach the top are the people who know this better than anybody else. I've used this quote I don't know how many times because it's so good, and it's getting a little dated because Tom Brady, who it's about, he's got... Let me tell you. Let me just use it first, and then I'll tell you why it's old. Okay. This is Tom Brady in an interview. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? Now you get it. He actually has five. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think... God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this, this, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. So the interviewer asks him, well, what's the answer? And Brady says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football. I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. He's now got five rings. He's 41 years old. He's still one of the top quarterbacks in the NFL and has, his team has one of the best shots, not the best shot, but one of the best shots at winning the Super Bowl again this year. He is so astoundingly driven because he remains incredibly hungry. Like we say, like to say around here, friends, you think too little of yourself. You think you're just made for earth but you were made for heaven too. And you have an infinite hunger that cannot be satisfied by anything here alone. Co contrast, 
contrast Brady with David. Again, back to verses 5 and 6. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, here's what's interesting is that we're not exactly sure the circumstances around which David wrote Psalm 16. But one of the most likely circumstances was that he was being chased by Saul's army. He had a bounty on his head. He was a wanted man. He had been driven out of his land. And he was completely on the run. And yet, what does he say? He says, I have a delightful inheritance. Here he is, perhaps out in the desert, hiding in a cave somewhere. And he's got no land. He's got no people. He's got nothing. And he says, I have an ind- a delightful inheritance. How is that possible? Well, God is teaching David that his inheritance is not so much a what, money, family, land, legacy, but a who. He's teaching David that he himself is David's inheritance. It's the same thing that Abraham learned way back in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham doesn't have a land, doesn't have, he's been promised land, he's been promised descendants, he doesn't have either of them yet. And God comes to him and says to David, he says, I am your shield, I am your very great reward. And little did you know, but you just sung that a few minutes ago. Well, something similar. In that beautiful song, House of God Forever, the Psalm 23 song, in the chorus, what does it say? Your shepherd's staff comforts me. You are my feast in the presence of my enemies. It's the same thing. Because God himself has become David's great reward, he says with confidence, he says, you have made my lot secure, and that's the key. That's the deepest longing. Listen, if reputation, if your reputation is your good thing, if that's what you're really holding on to for your security and for your sense of well-being, you will always be an insecure and neurotic person. Always. If your reputation is the most important thing to you, you will constantly be working to build it or protect it. And so you will be secretive about your struggles, your personal problems, your weaknesses, those kinds of things. You will have to hide them from the world because you always need to maintain that sense that you got it all together. And you will never receive help. You'll be very, very slow to ask for help or to receive help because you will find it threatening. And you won't grow. You will not grow because you cannot face your problems because your reputation is your security. And if it's ever threatened, you become irrationally afraid. doing anything you can to protect it and hold on to it. And it makes you ultimately a shallow person because you've got to fake your way through life. But if God is your good thing, if he is your delightful inheritance, if he is that, then he makes your lot secure, you see? 
What does it say? He says, you have assigned me my portion and, and my cup. He is the one who guarantees your security, not you. It doesn't depend on you to maintain a reputation. Out of that, okay, out of that security, look what, look what David sees. He sees a whole bunch of other blessings, and I'll just plow through them really quickly. Verse 7, I will praise you who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. The blessing of guidance. Life is confusing. Life is complicated. I, I can tell you one, one thing right now that I have to deal with as a parent that my parents never had to deal with, really. Really. I mean, I had a Commodore 64. Come on. How much technology was that? But what do you do with technology? What do you, how do you control screen time? Screen time. It's like 80% of my wife and my parental conversations is screen time. What do we do with screen time? And how do we limit screen time? And what's happening to our kids' brains because of their screen time? And our kids probably don't even have a ton of screen time compared to a lot of kids. But it's something that my parents never even had to think about. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken you, you have a stability and a security because you know even though life is fragile and uncertain, when that phone call you're waiting for, talk to, I'm going to put you on the spot, talk to Mike T about what it's like to wait for the phone call on the biopsy. One minute, you're just living life, building a business, growing a family. The next minute, you're waiting with bated breath to find out what the biopsy results are. And then verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure in the midst of a life that can be really full of a lot of sorrow and pain. There's a lot of pain in this world, guys. I've been visiting Myrnie for the last couple of months, just like a lot of you have. And she gets different roommates. And because it's Myrnie, she's best friends with those roommates within five minutes. And then you have to become best friends with them too because she introduced you and you get to talk to them. And every single one of these roommates, they start telling their story and it is absolutely heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Wives separated from husbands that they've been married to for 60 plus years. He's at home with cancer and you're in the hospital bed recovering from a hip, re hip replacement surgery and you don't know where you're going to live when they do let you out of the hospital. That's just one. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of sorrow in this world. Some of you know that firsthand. Some of you, by God's grace, don't know that so much by firsthand. But do you catch the theme? In the midst of changing circumstances all throughout, David is saying he has a hope, he has a security, he has a confidence. And yet even, even then, by the end of verse 9, with guidance, with stability, with joy, with all those things, it's still not enough. It's still not enough. Because, you know, all of those things can end too. All of those things can end too. You know what that's like. Verse 10 and verse 11. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. 
all the good of this life is really just a preview. Martin Luther used to say that in order to, to live well, you need to learn how to die well first. And what he meant by that was we should all come to grips with our mortality and realize that this life really is the preview, it is the foretaste, it is the introduction to the life to come, to the one that really matters. And so maybe God is calling you to suffer in some really hard ways. Maybe he is calling you to deny something that deeply, deeply matters to you, which you think that without it, you really have no reason to live at all. And he is calling you to give that up, and you think, well, what is any life like without that? Quality of life. That's what's so important to us right now. What kind of quality of life am I going to have if I can't have that? And David is saying, look, this life is a breath. I know it feels so long, especially when you're young, and I'm not old. It feels so long, and it feels so important. And it is important, but it sure isn't long. But it's just a preview. You will fill me with joy. Fill me with joy in your presence. Fill me. There will be nothing lacking. And then it says, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. With everlasting joy that never runs out, that never goes up and down, that never could possibly be taken away because it's an eternal joy. Let me close this way. Did David know about the resurrection, about the bodily resurrection? Maybe, maybe. But we know these last two verses, verses 10 and 11, we know that they are prophetic. They have to be. We know that because in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up at Pentecost to preach his most, that powerful sermon... On the day of Pentecost, he actually quoted these two verses, but he quoted them describing Jesus Christ. Peter says that David, without even really knowing it, was talking about Jesus Christ. Yes, David was a faithful uh, follower of God, a man after God's own heart, but Jesus Christ was the only completely faithful one. And he went to that cross for your sin and for my sin. And when, when he did that, it says that God raised him from the dead. And Peter said God made him both Christ, or sorry, made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Made him the true king. Made him the true holy one who would never see decay. God raised him from the dead forever, never to die again. And remember... Remember how David learned that his inheritance was not so much a what, but a who? That God himself would be in the, the inheritance that could never be lost, that would last forever? He says at the very end, he says, you have made known to me the path of life. That's the path of life that was made known to David, that God himself would be the inheritance. But here you and I sit 2,000 years after the coming of Jesus Christ, and we look back on the cross, and we remember what Jesus said to his disciples. What did he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He left his father's presence. He lost those eternal pleasures. He was 
sent to the grave, but he was not abandoned there. So that in him, you and I can find our good thing and know eternal pleasures both now, but one day forevermore. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, teach us, please teach us to understand that our inheritance is more a who than a what. Help us to realize that what we really want in our hearts is the love and is the relationship that we can have with the gift giver rather than with his gifts. Father, that is so hard for us to believe. We are like little kids who seem happier with our parents when they give us the gift than when they give us themselves. Well, you are the gift. Jesus is the gift. May we praise you and thank you and love you forever for giving us that gift and not withholding him. And may we rest in him and trust in him in this coming year and always where we will feel we will experience joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.